Radio Mano Papachango. Dr. Christopher Ryan and fellow tangentially speaking readers, listeners, and however you use your senses, I'm in downtown Ferrara, Italy, which is an hour away from Bologna, maybe less. Uh, there's the Buskers Festival. It's got music, different uh, little bands, big bands, all over the street. It's just really badass. Well. I made one wrong decision, though. I had a whole hit of LSD. I only ate half of it, um, thinking I should wait till I get to uh, Crete. But anyway, um, this in the story. I don't want to talk too long. Um, I only ate a half of my LSD hit. I should have ate the whole thing. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, uh, listeners. Keep kicking ass, Chris. I know you love hearing that. Hello, Chris, and all of you wonderful tangentially speaking audience around the world. My name's Eric and I'm just uh, driving 500 kilometers from the city of Perth down south to a little town called Cowgan River uh, on the Southern Ocean uh, in Western Australia. I just listened to your podcast conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, uh, an incredible human and uh, yeah, what I perceive to be a true elder as I see you to be Chris and it was a wonderful conversation that brought me to tears, I must say. Um, the authenticity and rawness is uh, is much much needed, I think, and, and uh, I certainly feel desperate for those moments. And yeah, thank you again for for providing such a beautiful uh, conversation to us all. Uh, peace and love. Ciao. Okay, Chris. This is Lorian Seho. We're at Kusa slash Saheli Falls in Oregon. Um, you and I met in Seattle at your little meetup group there, and Seho is the reason that I know who you are. Say hi, Seho. Hi, Christopher. So we're watching all this water tumble down in our tumbling little altered brains, and just having so much gratitude for the winter that people endured while I was sitting on a beach in Spain and um, watching the water move down through the mountains. So thanks for all you do. Keep it up. I hope that your travels are amazing. And maybe we'll see you in the van soon. Ciao. Thank you, beautiful people in all your various states of consciousness and dress and undress, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. It's so nice to hear from you. Uh, You know, I think, by now that you can send me... uh, your intro at intro at tangentially speaking dot com uh mp3 20 seconds or less please no need to thank me uh i you know if you're sending me if you're taking time i know you're listening that's thanks enough um but uh you know let us know what you're doing let us know what's on your mind and uh you know just a way for you to say hi to other aspects of the tangentially speaking community which is what this is all about. So thank you for those. Uh, it's so cool to hear from you and hear the waterfalls and, you know, hear what's going on out there driving from Perth 
to the Southern Ocean. I love I love the Australians have a way of saying things that like you can almost taste taste it. I don't know. Some languages are like that. <clears throat> I don't. Maybe it's just because I'm American. I don't feel it in American English, but I mean certainly French. Uh, you can, it feels like some French people are tasting the language as they say it. And I get it with some British as well and, uh, and Australian accents. There's a pleasure taken in some phrases, um, that just feels sensual when I listen to it. I don't know what I'm ranting about here. Uh, a few announcements for you. First of all, um, the Motherfucker Awards happening December 3rd, same place, Miracle Theater, Theater in Inglewood, California, which is right near the Los Angeles airport. Uh, last year was a shindig to be remembered. One of the greatest nights of my life, I must say, and I've had some pretty good damn nights but that one was incredible so we're doing it again this year um tickets are available at uh let me just make sure i've got this website right themotherfuckerawards.com that's easy to remember themotherfuckerawards.com tickets are available it's gonna sell out it sold out last year this is the first time I'm mentioning it on my podcast. Uh, I think I might have mentioned it on Instagram or something, but I wanted to, I didn't want to like really saturate the social uh, media landscape with announcements until I gave you all a chance to grab a ticket. So, uh, the motherfuckerawards.com, uh, sometime later this week, I'll start posting it on social media in earnest and, um, so tickets are going to, it'll be sold out in probably two weeks at the most. So if you're interested in going, grab a ticket now. Um, you know, it's sort of like a Burning Man situation. If you end up buying tickets and then it turns out you can't go, I will certainly help you sell those tickets. Uh, I'll whatever, put them on my website or we'll work something out. So, um, yeah, definitely the motherfucker awards come if you can, it's going to be crazy. Uh, what else can I tell you? It's been a pretty crazy uh, month, October. The book Civilized to Death came out October 1st, and I've been running ever since. Uh, been in New York, Denver, Seattle, Portland. Flew down to L.A., did Joe Rogan's podcast, jumped in the van, drove up to San Francisco, and uh, did uh, some an event up there on the hate. So thank you uh, to everybody who came out to those events. It was so cool to meet you and sign your books and hear your stories. And uh, my only regret is that, you know, at these book signing things, um, people line up and, uh, you know, everybody comes up to the table and I'm signing the book and we, you know, we have a chance to talk for just a you know 50 seconds or 15 seconds or a minute or whatever it is um and then you know there's this big line of people behind and i feel i mean it's so fucking great to be able to meet you and to hear people say that you know whatever the podcast or sex at dawn or civilized to something whatever it is that that i've done has touched your life in some way and 
man, it's so beautiful and so fulfilling um, and meaningful to hear that. Um, but I have to apologize to everyone with whom I interacted because the problem is that there's a line of people waiting and I, you know, as much as I would like to sit there and just chat with everybody for half an hour and really get into it, it's just not possible. So it's one of those weird things in life where you, um, you know, you go through years and years and years with, without a single interaction like that. And then suddenly there are so many that there's not enough time. And so it's, um, it's kind of fucked up, you know, you want to spread them out so that everybody has time and leisure. It's, it's like the traveling. Like, I don't want to go to six cities in two weeks. That's not my style. I want to just chill and hang out and enjoy every place I go. Um, but that's what it is um, when you're doing a book tour. So anyway, thank you to everybody who came out. Uh, before I get further into this, I just want to say this episode is with a really interesting dude, um, Akshay Nanavati. Nanavati. He's, um, oh God, I don't even know how to describe this guy. He is uh former, I think he was a Marine. Um, he was in Iraq. He talks about that. Um, he's a fascinating dude. He's, he, he's one of these guys who really pushes the limits. He dragged a sled across Greenland camping on the ice. And he did, um, uh, just recently he was telling me he did this, uh, I think it was a one week darkness retreat, like total darkness. Um, fascinating guy. Anyway, he's published a book called Fearvana, uh, in which he talks about the role of fear in his life and how he deals with it and, and conceptualizes it and, um, sort of uses it as a motivation. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating conversation. I, he came up to Topanga a couple of weeks ago and I was really very happy to meet him. And, uh, he's a guy that I hope to keep in touch with and hopefully have him on again sometime. Um, anyway, uh, this, uh, there's some other things I want to tell you. As I mentioned, I was on Joe Rogan's podcast, um, what a week ago. Fuck. I've lost track of time. I don't know. A few days ago, a week ago, whatever it was. Um, that was great as always to hang with Joe again, totally surreal. It's such a surreal experience because I mean, first of all, you go to his studio, which is, um, it's, it's the biggest man cave in the world. Probably. I mean, it's this huge warehouse. He actually, you know, parks cars in the warehouse. Uh, he's, there's a full, uh, boxing ring, a full gym, uh, pool tables, archery range. It's just like every boy toy you can imagine. Um, it, it, it's amazing. Uh, float tank, sauna, whatever. I just, the whole thing. And then there's like a smallish room within this complex, which is the studio where you go in and do the podcast. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, if I had a man cave, it would look different. It would probably be more like, uh, the playboy mansion or something, but it's definitely a reflection of Joe's, uh, values and appetites and, uh, uh, the different, uh, foci in his life. 
and uh, the dog was there, uh, which is the Marshall. Marshall, the golden retriever, was really friendly and uh, doesn't seem to be overly impressed with Joe's fame. So that's good. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a bizarre thing because I've known Joe long enough now that when I see him, it's mostly just us catching up. You know, like what have you been doing? We talked about the van trips a lot, and you know, living by the fire and whatever. You know, I bought this land. I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to sort of change the structure of my life and all that. Um, and you forget that there are upwards of a million people listening to this, or at least I do. And that's dangerous. That's weird. You know, every time I say things I shouldn't have said and I say, oh, damn, I shouldn't have said that. It's not just me and a buddy sitting in a room talking. I keep forgetting. It's it's deceptive that way. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, it was great. It was fun. I, we didn't really talk about the book much and I didn't want to push it because it's not that kind of a thing. You know, it's not one of those like interviews where you you're sure to mention the title of your book, you know, as often as possible without sounding like a tool. But, um, yeah, it was great. It was fun. And the, like the impact is crazy. You know, the book went from ranked 4,000 something on Amazon, uh, the bestseller rank to a hundred in a couple of hours, you know, and like the number of people looking at my Instagram profile went from, I think it's like 9,000 a week, you know, normally to a hundred thousand a week. It's, it was just like, what? So weird. Um, but anyway, that's, that's happened. And I've been doing lots of other podcasts and I'm going to continue doing them. I'm going to do the minimalist podcast, uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, doing some other ones. I forget. I'd have to, I'll, I'll keep you notified by the way if you want to know about these things on any sort of a regular basis make sure you sign up for the newsletter uh, at my webpage. if you just sign sign into the web page if you're a supporter at chris ryan phd.com or tangentially speaking.com um, you can for as little as two bucks a month that's the the lowest tier i think but you get access to everything there you get the free ebook downloads um, so far we have tangentially reading and, uh, uh, talking consciousness, tangentially talking consciousness or talking drugs. I forget what it's called. Um, but we just uploaded that one recently and there's another one coming soon. Tangentially talking sex. Uh, these are thematic excerpts from the podcast that we're putting together as eBooks um, you can buy them. If you're not a supporter, you can just buy them on Amazon. Uh, I think they're five bucks each. But if you are a supporter, like I said, you can get in for two bucks a month um, or five bucks a month or 10 or whatever, whatever feels right to you. But in any case, if you do that, the ebooks are free to download. So that's a perk. Um, and then you also uh, sign up for this newsletter where once a month I'll tell you uh, what podcasts I've been on and we'll include links and all that kind of stuff. So slowly but surely after six or seven years or whatever I've been doing this podcast, I'm, you know, starting to get things set up. So it's actually starting to look somewhat professional. <laughs> Finally. Uh, what else? I talked, one of the things I talked about with Joe was my experience with sleep apnea 
and I want to I want to make a point of mentioning this. I'll, I'll mention it in future podcasts, but it's something that you know I feel like one of the services that I can provide to you who are out there listening to this is to talk about things that um, have a positive impact in my life and that may have a positive impact in your life. On a smaller scale, uh, I've set up this website, What Makes This Thing Great, uh, which whatmakesthisthinggreat.com, where I just, when I think of it, when I get around to it, I post things that I use that I think are fucking cool. So there's people write to me saying, what do you, what mic do you use? What, you know, what do you, what's, what do you have in the van? You know, what sort of uh, freezer do you use? What solar stuff do you have hooked up? Um, so when I find things that are really good, uh, that work well, well designed, that I'm really impressed with, I put them on that website and, uh, you know, some of them, most of them, I think you can get on Amazon. So I get that affiliate uh, gravy, a little 5% or whatever uh, you spend. If you use the link to go to Amazon comes to me. So that helps support the podcast uh, and, and other endeavors. Um, and some things there, they don't, they're not on Amazon. I just put them up. I don't get any affiliate moolah. It just, uh, it's just a service because it's stuff. I don't like buying stuff. So when I find something really cool that lasts, um, then I, I'm one of these guys who like tells all my friends about things when I find it. So I consider you to be friends. So I'm telling you anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the sleep apnea situation. So I was, uh, you know, tired all the time. Uh, I was feeling increasingly that, I would fall asleep immediately. Like I would lie in, lie down and be asleep before my head fit, hit the pillow. And that's not good. Um, that means you're exhausted. And I get really tired midday. And um, anyway, if uh, a friend of mine was, you know, listening to me sleep and she was like, listen, uh, I counted. You're, you're like going 20, 25 seconds without breathing. Like it's scary. You're choking and and I've had that sensation, like I was suffocating and you sort of wake up and then fall back asleep immediately because you're so tired. Anyway, I went in um, to Kaiser and did a sleep test. Now, you don't need to be overnight, at least at Kaiser. They just give you this thing. You take it home and you it's uh, one of those clips that goes on your finger and measures your oxygen, how oxygenated your blood is overnight. And there was this other thing that you taped to your chest, um, just a sensor, I think a heart rate and, and breathing sensor and body position. Um, and you just go to sleep like you normally would. And then you take the device back to the hospital the next day and they get a readout from it. And then a week later, I talked with the doctor and she said, look, um, anything over, I think it was 25 events in an hour is considered severe you had 72. Um, so essentially I was suffocating more than once per minute. And what happens is you're, when you fall asleep, the tissues in your throat, the, the muscles in your throat relax and that can constrict your breathing. It closes off your esophagus. 
And so then you start to panic in your sleep and you wake up enough to tense those muscles and open up your airways again. And so you go through this cycle over and over and over again. So it's like you're never, you never get into REM sleep. You never get into deep sleep. You're just like just below the surface all night long. That's not good for your brain. Um, my blood oxygen levels were dangerously low. So that's, you know, all sorts of tissue damage. Sleep apnea is associated with depression, anxiety, uh, much higher rates of auto accidents because people are like, you know, um, dozing off while they're driving. Uh, all sorts of uh, erectile sexual dysfunction, all sorts of stuff. And there's a there's shame around around it. Um, you know, just like there's shame around snoring. I hate snoring. I fucking hate it when I'm, when I'm like camping with people or something and somebody's snoring, it's so annoying. And yet I was snoring. And, um, so there's definitely shame there because it's like something gross that you do, but you're unconscious. So you, you're not doing it on purpose, but you realize that it's horrible. It's like, if you really fart all the time when you're sleeping, you'd be ashamed of that too, I guess. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, I got this machine, uh, APAP machine, automatic pressure or something or other. And, uh, you put like a thing on your nose to, that keeps pressure when you breathe. And, um, it's fantastic. I just want to say it is fantastic. I'm sleeping like I haven't slept in years the machine is totally quiet. Uh, doesn't bother anyone. I don't snore anymore. I'm not keeping anyone awake. I'm not freaking out the neighbors. Dogs aren't barking. Coyotes aren't howling. The whole thing is fucking fantastic. And I wake up in the morning feeling rejuvenated like I haven't in years and years. So this has been a long public service announcement saying that if you snore... And look, it's not like there, it's there's some association with um, uh, weight, but uh, losing weight isn't necessarily going to help because in my case, the doctor explained like I have a, uh, my soft palate is unusually large or something. And so it just, losing weight would not have changed that. Uh, I'm maybe 10 pounds overweight, but it's not, that's not going to do the issue. So that might be another source of pain. People think apnea is associated with, um, obesity or being overweight and there is an association, but it's not, uh, you know, hundred percent correlated. Lots of, uh, in this class I took, a, you know, the sort of first meeting in the hospital, there were maybe a dozen people there, three or four women, nobody was obese or, you know, um, uh, so anyway, it is not, uh, anything to be ashamed of. It's something that can be fixed quickly, easily, and completely. And you feel so much better. And, you know, your, uh, risk of heart disease. And as I said, auto accidents and depression and all those things will go down immensely. So if you or someone, you know, is uh, a loud snore and you hear them kind of choking uh, during the night, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you uh, talk to a doctor and get that sleep test and see if 
you've got obstructive sleep apnea. And if you do, get the damn machine and check that box. Problem solved. All right. I think that's enough for me. Uh, One other thing I want to mention is that there are new shirts at the website, at the new website, uh, which you can check out there, like sexy, low-cut women's tank tops uh, in the Civilized to Death uh, design and also the uh, 96.9% Bonobo design. They look very cool, very, very sexy. Um, They're kind of uh, very soft cotton. It's a different supplier, different uh, cut. So if if you're in the market for something like that, make sure you check those out at thatchrisryan.com. All right, I'm going to play you out with a tune called Detox Mansion by Warren Zevon. It is a uh, real rock and roll tune, uh, really like gets down. But what I love about the song is the sense of irony and humor, which is sort of typical Warren Zevon. He he was a wild man um, and he had some funny things to say. So this is about, uh, you know, a sort of an L.A., rock and roll star who goes to a rehab facility and uh you know he says something about me and Liza which I guess is Liza Minnelli and Liz Elizabeth Taylor and he sort of drops these names like you know he's hanging out with all these movie stars with their addictions and so it's uh it's kind of a funny tragic tragic comedy tragic comic whatever the adjectival form is song detox mansion warren zivon and then my conversation with akshay nanavati thank you for listening everybody uh it's so nice to know you're out there and to be part of this community of weirdos i'll talk to you soon
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in my living room in Topanga with Akshay Nanavandi. Akshay Nanavadi, yes, Nanavadi. sir. <laughs> I added an extra N in there somewhere. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were just talking about your name's Indian. Uh, you're from Mumbai. Mumbai. How old were you when you left? I left India at eight and then Singapore for five years and got to the U.S. at 13. What was that like? The move initially was challenging for, I moved to Austin, Texas. So I moved to, te- in Texas, the reputation, right? So moving from Singapore, all my friends were like, you're a brown guy moving to Texas. They're all going to hate you out there. Right. <laughs> Everyone's going to think you're Mexican. Yeah, exactly. And so I had no clue what to expect, you know, but Austin, right? It's not what you think of when you think of Texas. Yeah. City. You're lucky uh, you didn't move to Houston or right? Corpus Christi or some <laughs> shithole. Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean that. Didn't mean that. Uh, yeah. I'm not a fan of Texas. I yeah. gotta say, I, I like Austin. Austin's a cool city. And there's a little town called Terlingua down on the Rio Grande. That is fantastic. I met some really cool people down there and had okay. a good time. But the rest of Texas can kiss my ass, basically, because <laughs> like the thing I hate about Texas is everything's fenced off. Hmm. The whole damn state is private property. There's no yeah. park. There's nowhere to walk. There's no mm. hiking. It's just you drive along those highways. It's just fence, fence, fence yes. everywhere. Yeah. You know, with keep out signs and, <laughs> you know, people with guns. And, uh. and also, Texans, I, I mean, Texans crack me up. It's like everything... All the worst things about America amplified in Texas. You know, See, I don't. I, I think my experience is very because I came from, only from Austin. I don't really know the rest of Texas, right. and Austin's right. a different world. Oh yeah, right. Totally. So Austin was this super chill, very like chill vibe, hippie kind of place. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, I and I love Austin. Keep Austin weird. Yeah, keep Austin weird. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally different. So. But I mean, you see these Texans in airports walking around with their fucking cowboy boots <laughs> and their hats, and I always think like, how are we taking them seriously they're essentially wearing a halloween costume you know if i walked around in moccasins and you know a feather headdress people would think i was crazy yeah but are we playing cowboys and indians here or just cowboys 
Uh, anyway, sorry, Texas. <laughs> I get what you mean, but <laughs> yeah. So, because I moved a lot as a kid, did you? I, I moved oh, okay. at that same age, but not internationally. Hmm. I just moved between to, states in the U.S. Yeah, but being the new kid sucks. It was challenging, you know. I was this. I moved when I moved to Texas too. I had a British accent, so right. I remember moving here and I would say things like canteen instead of cafeteria or lift <laughs> instead of elevator, you know. So yeah. this here's this goofy, skinny little clown, really. <laughs> with the British accent. So I got right. made fun of a little bit, but nothing serious. I ended up, because we moved, even from moving from Singapore, I'd already moved from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore. Right. So I had moved three times by the age of, by the age of eight years old, you right. know, and then 13 moved to Texas again. So I kind of got used to the process, but without a doubt, I was lost. I wasn't sure who I was. I was trying to fit in everywhere as opposed to really just owning me. Right. And which is, you know, soon after moving to Texas, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. You know, I don't blame my friends. I take responsibility for my action, but I always kind of say that if I had gotten into a group of, let's say, ultra runners or mountaineers or something, I probably would have applied that addictive personality to that like, right. I, like I do now. Yeah. So you yeah. Moved to Boulder or someplace yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, Austin is about about alcohol and drugs, getting drunk, going out, listening to some music, and there's that sort of bohemian, yeah, almost like New Orleans kind of vibe. I can understand that, and I can also understand that seeking identity and mm-hmm. wanting to associate with mm-hmm. a group really intensely. Absolutely, right? That need for a belonging that yeah. we all have. And I yeah. was, like I said, I was very lost. I was, you know, got in this group and I was the kind of guy and to, the, who I am today is no different in many ways, pushing the line. So when I found this group, I was the guy, me and one other guy were the first in our group to start doing harder drugs, you know, from marijuana and alcohol to harder stuff. And like what, what were you doing? LSD, lots and lots of LSD, cocaine. Uh, I would, I got into, yeah, I got into cocaine and I would, I was at a point though that I would have done any drug that came my way. I mean, I was seeking it. I was looking for, I was, would have tried PCP. I was looking for special K. I would have tried heroin. I mean, I was like, I have cuts on my arms. I used to cut myself, burn myself, you know, was just in this dark space really. And like the same guy who him and me started going from marijuana, alcohol to harder stuff. He's no longer alive today. He ended up going to heroin and OD'd, but thankfully by that time I had stopped and, uh, Everything changed from there. You know, it always confuses me when I hear these these kinds of stories mm. of um, people who who talk about doing harder drugs like cocaine and LSD and mm-hmm. heroin and meth and so. Mm-hmm. Because to me, LSD and and psychedelics are so different. I agree. And do you? So I do. I 100% agree. In fact, I'm just right now staying with a friend who the psychedelic healing, I believe in a lot, I see a lot of value in that trend of psychedelic healing for sure. Uh, but I also think it's the consciousness and the level through which you're approaching the drug. Right. We were not looking for some sort of conscious awakening at that right. stage. Right. We were just looking to get fucked up, really. You know, we were just looking to get high as high. I mean, I took at one point 18 hits of acid. Which is, again, I don't even have context on it, but it's a lot. Like, we were not looking to get any sort of spiritual awakening from this. We were just looking for that high. And uh, and LSD happened to be the drug of choice. But again, if if anything else came my way, I would have done that one, you know? So do you think, based on your experience with these different drugs, is there something... Uh, no, I guess you don't believe this, that there's something about psychedelics that is inherently... How can I say this? It's like, like I understand using alcohol, marijuana, 
for most people, mm-hmm. marijuana can function this way. Mm-hmm. Certainly cocaine as a comfort drug or as mm-hmm. an escapist mm-hmm. kind of thing. No, I, I never took psychedelics till I was in college. I was mm. 18 the first time. Mm. So I And I took them very much with um, with people who were like, hey, you're going to learn something here. This is yeah. going to be enlightening. You're going to yeah. see shit that's going to blow your mind. This, you know. So the context for me was very much oriented toward that. And, and so my experience is biased. But I've always felt like with psychedelics, there's something like they can't be used for escapism because they're going to make you see yourself. But I guess maybe not. Yeah. In my experience, they definitely can <laughs> be used for escapism. All right. So I'm full of shit, ladies <laughs> no, and not, gentlemen. No, not at all. In the sense that Once again. because you were opened up, you entered into that from that yeah. point of view. Like you, yeah. that's your world was taught. So that was the that was the paradigm that was created and constructed sure. around it. But there's nothing in the experience itself that turns you toward truth or enlightenment or self uh, yeah. exploration. I think it Apparently has to not. be approached with that intention, right. with that level of consciousness. Right. With uh, with which, if you're not, if you're just looking to get high and as messed up as possible, I mean, I didn't gain any sort of awakenings from these experiences. Yeah. You know, it was pure, <laughs> uh, just messed up. I mean, I, it was just getting high, finding an escape. Uh, and this was just happened to be the drug of choice. But no, none of us, nobody, me and my friends yeah. who were doing it, were looking for any sort of uh, uh, you know higher consciousness. We were right. just looking to get as high as possible. Possible. So what broke you out of the cycle? Actually watching the movie Black Hawk Down. Was oh, the, really? Have you seen the movie? Yeah. That's uh, Somalia. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was the Army Rangers and Delta Force uh, that were deployed to Somalia. And watching that movie was planted the seed that eventually got me out of drugs. I, I, right after watching the movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down and read book after book on military and combat. Because in that movie, if you, I don't know if you remember, but there's, there's these two um, Delta snipers, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar. They were in a chopper and they volunteered to go down to the ground to set up a defensive perimeter. Just two guys knowing that thousands of armed enemy are coming their way. After the first chopper went down. After the second Black Hawk went down. Oh, so they're the they're, they're like, Hawk. put us down. We can defend these guys we'll while off. we wait for while we wait for the rest rescue. of the rain the Rangers to come in. But right. now those guys were trapped and fighting their way to try to get to the second Black Hawk. So right. there was, I mean, it, again, they were surrounded, thousands of armed enemy personnel coming their way, right? So they didn't know when any sort of reinforcements would arrive and get to them. It was two guys, and they both died. They both were killed, but the guy they die protecting, Michael Durant, is still alive today because of what they did. Right. And they received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for courage and valor in the in the in the military, and posthumously, obviously, because they died. But um, watching that was just—I mean, it just kind of triggered in me. And, and this, that scene, among many others, but the kind, you know, the kind of courage it takes to sacrifice your life knowingly for something else and someone else, it was awe-inspiring to me. And it was just—it really, really made me question this sort of selfish, meaningless, and <laughs> purposeless existence that I was living, you know? And so that's why I read the book. Um, I mean, I went straight from the movie theater, read the book, and read book after book. And to me, the appeal in going to an experience like, and again, I'm not, you know, sort of war junkie or anything like that, but the what what was, um, I suppose, in some ways alluring about that experience, the intensity of war, was that you go to this experience where you experience the... Um, the worst and the best of humanity. You know, you see the worst of humanity, obviously, like war, killing people, atrocities. But you also see people jumping on grenades to save a fellow human being, sacrificing their lives for something greater than themselves, for someone greater than themselves. And that was something uh, fascinating about to live in an environment where the good of the group matters more than the good of the individual. Very opposite to my right. selfish life I was living before that. Although your life 
before that was a life of extremes. It was. Right. I was always that guy. Like, I mean, I, somehow, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I wonder how I made it out. We used to do a lot of stupid things. I used to throw knives in the air, and I wasn't by any means a sort of professional, you know, juggler. I would throw knives up and down and somehow, you know, not kill myself. We did these things. We used to drive cars over hills with like 90 degree turns right at the bottom of the hill that if a car came across, not only would we have been killed, but we'd kill someone else. And how yeah. that, you know, so... I was the one pushing the line even there. And yeah. now, again, I do it in positive ways today, but right. that was me. And like I said, two of my friends, two, two of my friends, not just one, but two of them OD'd and died. And those, we, we were the group that started together, you know, and they, they went down that road and it could have easily been me. Yeah, my best friend in high school with whom I did stupid shit. I remember we used to drive his mother's car. We were both 15. Neither one of us was legal to drive. Mm. We'd take his mother's Nissan I forget what it was. When she wasn't home, we'd take it out. And his favorite thing to do was uh, when it had been raining, there were there were a couple places where the road went down and there was like a stream that would go over, like a little bit of water over the road. Yeah. And he'd hydroplane. He'd like go as fast as he could and then turn the wheels and keep cool. going straight. Yeah. So the front wheels were just sliding across the water. Like if they had caught, we would have flown right off the road. Like what kind of stupid shit do fifteen-year-old boys get up to? I got it's you. Crazy. <laughs> oh, I I totally understand. <laughs> it's fucking yeah. nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thankfully we made it but, out. But yeah. let's go back a little bit. So, why did you leave India? What what was going on in your family? My dad's job. So my dad worked for 3M for twenty-seven years. And so he, we moved from uh, Bombay to Bangalore. He was actually responsible for starting 3M in India or one of the contributors, like one of the early people in 3M India. And so then he moved from India to Singapore to Austin, right. moved to Minneapolis my senior year of high school. So you weren't poor. You had money. Your father was, you know, the executive in a company, but a chemist. Was he, he was engineer? a chemical engineer. Chemical yeah. Engineer. I mean, when we started, he, I mean, I never experienced any poverty for sure. When we right. started in his career, he wasn't well off. He worked his way up, up the ranks kind of thing. But, uh, but I never tasted anything remotely close to poverty we had right. i have i've had a great life great parents couldn't have asked for more you know right <laughs> yeah so you weren't rebelling against any sort of uh, economic situation no it wasn't an economic struggle by any means no were you yeah. a crazy little kid or do you think it happened as a response to your sort of cultural dislocations as a teenager I think a combination of the two i think part of it was that part of it was perhaps some sort of um you know, nature in terms of being this crazy. Because I remember when I was in Singapore, I used to run barefoot on rocks to test myself, you know. To, to, we would play, we play tag. I was always, the, I wanted to be the best at everything, compete at everything. Drugs was my way of competing and winning at that, you know. Right. You uh, so brothers? Brothers One older sisters? brother, yeah. We're 180. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a rivalry with him? Were you no. like fighting him or trying to prove yourself? He was just him? one year older. We were just so poles apart. Like really? I was social, very like made friends in every city we moved to. Yeah. He struggled with that a little bit more. He's one of the smartest human beings I know in terms of sort of uh, book smarts and intelligence. I do not have anything remotely. People think in, I'm smarter in the family because I talk. Like, I'm street smart, if you would call it that. And you published a book. And I published a book now. Uh, you but, better be book smart. <laughs> it better be a little Fucking bit, right? author. Come on, <laughs> A little bit, right? <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, we're 180. So really? it was just me doing my thing. And What's the, he doing now? He's working some of his stuff. He's traveling across, uh, I don't know where he's, he's moved to Armenia. He's doing some long-term investing, trying to figure out some, uh, Armenia. yeah, Armenia, wow. Yerevan. Apparently it's a gorgeous place. Yeah. yeah I have a buddy who's Mozart. riding his motorcycle, uh, from Italy. He was 
going to Mongolia. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. He, I got oh, wow. an email from him recently. He was in Armenia. Sent me some photos. Beautiful. Yeah, I've heard it's stunning. I've he said the women really are really hot, too. That's what I hear, too. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hear two for two on that. <laughs> Armenia. Yeah, let's go to Armenia. <laughs> Uh, all right, so so you you watched Black Black Hawk Down, yeah. So I went to Black Hawk High School. Did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. My first year, I went uh-huh. to three different high schools. That was the first one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Black Hawk Down, and so from this drug-addled teenage lunatic, you decide you're super into the military culture and you want to go, you want to be a Marine? Did you know? Originally I was going to go Army, Army because the Army, movie was right. Army Rangers. So right. that was kind of what, I wanted to go Army Rangers and then go into Special Forces eventually become Delta. But when I joined the military, I wasn't a U.S. citizen. So I can't, you can't go Special Forces or be an officer uh, uh, because those both those require secret clearance, which you can't get unless uh, you're a citizen. I was a green card holder when I went in. So because I couldn't go right into it, I was like, you know, Marines are the best because let's come on, they're the Marines. Right. So, the few, so I was like, proud. exactly, yeah. <laughs> few the proud. <laughs> so I was like, let me go Marines, and then eventually, as I learned more, I could go into Special Forces through the Marines. But it took me a long time to get into the Marines. I had to sort of fight my way in actually because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in Marine Corps boot camp. What's the blood disorder? It's called thalassemia. So essentially, mean? like. I think what I believe is that so a normal guy has 14 to 16 grams of hemoglobin. I have 11. And hemoglobin transports oxygen through your blood, right. which is probably important. Right. <laughs> so I have less oxygen flowing through my blood. So the doctor said that intense physical training would kill me. Right. Now, I didn't know what, you know, but at this point, it didn't matter to me what anybody says. I was like, this is what I got to do. So I went to a third doctor, got a waiver, took that letter to the military. But it took me a year and a half to get a medical waiver because mm. the, quali- the condition itself was disqualifying. And so you, do, you take feet. iron supplements or something? You can't. Like I take folic acid from time to time, but it's like it's non, even iron. So like you can't reverse it. Nothing right. you can do. It's going to be there for, for my for uh, life yeah my mom's got it i think my grandma's got it do you experience so, fatigue or what, what are the symptoms? so yeah so from what i understand like what i've been told about now i don't even see it as anything I, I do what i do but like is that you know let's say there's a lot of factors involved but let's say you and me are sort of you know same age same physical uh, uh like we're at the same physical level it might take me a little bit longer to let's say advance even if we're training the same way and i obviously there's multiple factors in in that in genetics and all that in training but it would take me a little bit longer to get better, so I do perhaps get fatigued easier. Uh, like I, like one thing I, I, you know, is I'm always like craving salts when I after my long ultra runs. So I think, from what I understand, because again, oxygen flowing through your blood—that's important for anybody, yeah, yeah. let alone someone who's now an ultra runner. Or when I climb when I climb mountains and have done some high altitude mountaineering, I'll feel the, you know, I'll feel the effects of that. And I even in my running, I'm like I'm not the fastest runner in the world, dude. Everybody so, feels the effects. The, I mean, yeah, everybody you don't does. Climb a mountain. <laughs> so exactly so yeah. to, to me like i don't know to what degree it's just like everybody's gonna when you run 40 50 60 70 miles you're gonna feel it it's gonna suck right no matter what so yeah. i'm not gonna feel it because <laughs> so, i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it, it. Ain't gonna <laughs> so yeah so I, today it's no yeah. longer it's not I don't even look at it as a barrier it's yeah. like it's another thing i just have whatever i'll, I'll deal with it and so it what you've got something to prove what what's up with you why <laughs> why the extremes why push 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 what do you what am i seeking yeah um i i as you know it, at first, there wasn't very consciousness in doing all this. It was just sort of going, maybe just channeling from the drugs to the Marines. But now, I, I, now I'm now doing it from a very high degree of awareness of what I'm doing. And 
I believe that life is meant to be experienced at its extremes. Like the more you experience the like the the spectrum, the range, the frontiers of the human experience, the human condition, the more you really um, are alive, you know. And the the I mean, to me, my right now where I'm currently at, my extreme is the mundane. I struggle with the mundane, and so I I have found so much value in in exploring the deepest, darkest corners of the human experience to the highest bliss. And I, I mean, to this day, I experience lower the lows than probably most people will. Mm. My lows are very low, and I go into some dark places, but. I also feel like the highs are extremely high right. and I love just the, I love the range of the experience. You know, why, why would I want to just stay in this one life that we have? Why would I want to stay boxed into this sort of one, uh, only experiencing one element of such a vast, uh, expanse of the human condition of life. And so what about the value of safety or, um, routine or comfort or those things, do you do you recognize value in that, or, or are those the enemy of the extreme experience you're seeking? I think there is. I mean, there is value to that because, like anything, if you push, it, anything can become the norm. So, in order to appreciate the extremes, you have to come back to the comfort. Right. Otherwise, even an extreme can become you get acclimatized to, right. to a way of being. Right. To a it becomes you know, comfortable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to. That's why, like for me, the mundane is. I mean, building my business, sitting, writing my book, sitting on a computer, writing a book was brutal really hard for me yeah. <laughs> newfound respect for authors so a lot of respect for right. you too i mean writing yeah. i used to no, procrastinate it, it on writing it sucks it's it's the people are always surprised when i say i hate writing yeah i'm <laughs> you know I, I i don't i don't hate like i love writing a letter to a friend or or you know i like when i, f I have something to say sit down and write it yeah. that feels great but to say, oh, I'm going to sit here for five hours a day for the next three years yeah. until I've got 350 good pages. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. I want to go for a walk. I want to be outside. Yeah. I want to read. I yeah. want to hang out with friends. I'm not a guy who's, who just wants to sit alone in a room all day. Yeah. No. It sucks. Yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> yeah. It is brutal. Yeah. And your ass hurts and your legs hurt. It's like, come on, your body's going, dude, get up. Do something. Yeah. Yeah. I used to procrastinate on writing yeah. by going literally, I would run a marathon to go procrastinate, avoid writing and yeah. justify it to myself. To, hey, I I'm would still, masturbate. I'm still. <laughs> that's, that's my marathon. <laughs> Long session. get away. Though, man. <laughs> <laughs> a masturbation marathon. So, uh, all right. So, so, where are we? Your book. So, let's talk about let's your book, Fearvana. Interesting title. Thank cool. you. Cool. So, what. what where did that come from? Why, why did you... Someone told me once, never write a book unless you have to. Hmm. And hmm. that was a writer, and he knew what how brutal how, it was. Yeah. So did you have to write this book? I would say yes. You know, it, it, what led me to it, to the ethos of Firvana and to the book was after... So after coming back from the war, I was deployed to uh, Iraq with the Marines, and uh, I was an infantry Marine. So one of my jobs, among many others, was to like literally walk in front of our vehicle convoys looking for bombs before they could be used to blow up our vehicles. You know, so infantry marine out there in Iraq, came back, lost a friend in the war even before I left, struggled with survivor's guilt. Was, was that like one of the things you did or was that your specialty? One of the things among many other jobs out Jesus there. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. How'd, how'd you get chosen for that? <laughs> for that, get, <laughs> lucky me, right? Brown. Send, the, send the brown skin guy <laughs> yeah, out Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's going to blend in with the locals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> did people think you were Iraqi? when They you did. Were, yeah. Actually, people did. And they thought, many of them thought uh, I was lying when I said I wasn't because I'm a U.S. Marine, so they thought I wasn't admitting to be an Iraqi right. Marine. But, you know, so they, a lot of people did. And I got pretty good at Arabic, too. So uh-huh. I was able to, like, communicate. Right. And right. in some, some cases, I believe, like, really diffuse what could have gotten to a pretty serious situation simply by mastering you know a healthy amount of uh, arabic yeah so it was a valuable skill it's counterinsurgency warfare you know i mean yeah. the nature of the war is you're not there's not clear enemy you're walking through the city most people are just civilian but you just don't you just don't know which one of them is potentially the one who wants to kill you and your buddies but how do you feel about being an invader so I, I, this obviously we shouldn't have gone in the war. You know, I actually, so I was a history major in undergrad and I had a pretty unique experience in that I was been to war, been to Iraq, but I also, and I and did a lot of research. So I wrote my history thesis on the war. Mm. So was well-educated on it. Uh-huh. Uh, and yes, all lies. We should not have been there. All that stuff is completely true. Having gone in there though, I felt like we could have done some good for the people. Mm. Now, like, and you know, history could very well prove this completely wrong if we look at where we're even at now in the situation yeah. there. But like when I was there, you know, I had Iraqis come up to me and say, I feel sorry Americans have to pay in blood for Iraqi freedom. Or other Iraqis like would come tell me, like I met this one guy, he had been a prisoner of war for eight years in Iran because of the Iran-Iraq war that Saddam Hussein had started. Now, prisoner of war in Iran, I can't even fathom what that man must have been through, right? Yeah. And you could see he was sort of psychologically clearly something up with him to say the least but like he would come up to us and like sort of with just passion shake us and be like americans and iraqis must work together you know because the people there have gone through so much hell for so long yeah that it's it's horrific so yeah you know we shouldn't have gone in there but having been out there i felt like hopefully we could have done some good for the people who have really just gone through hell for so much of their lives and like most of the world most people just want to live good lives but you only you don't see those people you only see the one percent or point one the spectrum who want to see the world burn right and that's not just in iraq like everywhere when when people outside america look at america what do they see in the news yeah we look like a bunch of crazy people you know what I mean? we're, yeah. we're, we're nuts so it's that's not the reality most people on the ground are just Good people want to take care of their families that, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting dynamic to not sort of believe that we should have been there, but to, but I remember, for example, saying that if we had gone into fight like against some like Palestine, let's say in Israel, Palestine, some of the craziness that's happening there and some of the things that, you know, I would have, it was, it was, it was a hard thing to like wrestle with, um, where do you sit on this line? Like you maybe not fully agree with the politics of the war, but on the ground maybe could have done some good. So yeah, yeah. And also, it sounds like you had a much more nuanced understanding of the situation than most of the guys you were in there. With. Absolutely, absolutely. Did. Yeah. What was yeah. that like? Did did you guys talk about the politics, or was it all just like get in, do your job, and get out? Uh, I did, uh, <laughs> but I laugh because. I was known to be the, like, I spoke my mouth. I spoke my, I was very open about my beliefs and stuff like that. So for, as an example, one day when we had media come to our base, the first sergeant literally came up to me and said, Nanavati, you are not talking in front of the media. <laughs> they don't need some young, dumb corporal shooting off his mouth about American foreign policy in the war. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. but I was very, I was very vocal about my thoughts. And uh, I mean, by my standard, by my thinking, I was a, uh, on the very liberal spectrum of (laughs) 
in a group of Marines, you know what I and mean? the other Marines were cool with that, or did they try to shut you down? Some people, I mean, like the my buddies, obviously, like I have very close buddies, so they, they we would, they, the ones that we would, we would, the ones who were willing to have conversations that, because I'm not saying, I'm obviously I'm not saying I'm right about everything, but the ones who were really willing to discuss and have conversations, yeah. we became close. Right. Some people, they just thought I'm like, Nanavati's that guy, you know, so whatever. Right. right. <laughs> but I got close with definitely a lot of them, and we were, we had good conversations about the nature and many of them would agree with me and sometimes not but we had at least right. we're able to have a discussion about it that's at least important right as opposed to this sort of blind which is what we're seeing unfortunately so much in the world this sort of blind I- i'm right you're wrong kind of mentality right. which gets us nowhere well it's encouraging <laughs> to hear that the that even in the marines there's that openness to differing points of view to again yeah to some degree for yeah. sure uh, yeah. uh you know and we i was in a marine reserve unit when we got deployed so a lot of the guys that i went um went over there with you know at the time they were in college uh, while while getting deployed, so you know, so the, so they were studying some of this, depending on again their majors and all that stuff, but studying some of this stuff. So we were able to have right. interesting conversations about, uh, yeah, about all of it. Yeah. How long were you over there? Seven months, one tour. Yeah, right. one tour in Iraq, and uh, and I actually so yeah, and so when I came back, I really struggled though, really struggled. I mean, I came back. I I just I kept, I kept wanting to go back to war. I was like, send me back to Iraq, send me back to Afghanistan, just send me somewhere. Why? There's a very addictive nature to war uh, that is, it's, it's very, I mean, when you're in a war, you're in a constant high to some degree. That's addictive. You're out there, and again, separate from the politics of it, if you remove all the politics, on the ground, here we are doing something meaningful to, like, to help these people. You're in a group, this, the camaraderie and the brotherhood, brotherhood. You're fighting together as one. You're here doing something meaningful and purposeful, at least, again, on the ground, separate from the politics. So there's so many elements of it. Okay, there's meaning to this existence. There's a rush. There's a high. There's a brotherhood. Mm. It meets so many of our, these, these innate human uh, yeah. uh, drives, you know, that, that is, uh, it's hard to get in the mundane, which is again, something I'm still getting better at embracing the mundane. So coming, when I came back, I came back to my senior year of college and you come back to college. I mean, college, and this is, I granted did not have the level of awareness I do today. So I was far more judgmental, but, but you know, everybody does the best they can with their level of awareness. You can't blame a college student for not having the experiences and the awareness I had after coming back from war. So I get that today. But back then I was just like, these kids don't know shit and they're whining about the dumbest things in life. Uh, and it's frustrating. It's true. Let's face it. <laughs> it's also, That's fucking true. Especially today. Yeah. We are, we are without a doubt softer than ever before. It's just as a culture, no doubt. Yeah. And it's a ri- yeah. ridiculous today. So and, even and back then, more, was, more angry for some reason. It's like, it, it's, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier about comfort and, and extremes and all that. It, it's strange. It, it's, I guess if you spend too much time, in comfort, it's like you get obese. You get so soft. 100%. Yeah. And it's like we, we're suffering from an intellectual obesity or something in that. America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A comfort's made us weak. It's made us fatter. It's made Angry. us softer. It's made us It's We're just a, we're like this, this excessive comfort in a land of excess is not good for us. And yeah. by any measure of success, whatever you want to call it, or happiness, you know, mental well-being, uh, financial well-being, psychological, like spiritual well-being, we're getting worse collectively as a species, right? Yeah. And, and comfort is in many ways. God, you're going to love my book coming out tomorrow. <laughs> It sounds like it. I cannot wait. Yeah. I, that's why, I mean, even seeing the title, I was like, God knows yeah. I resonate with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's t- it's a tough message, though, you know, to, to uh, I mean, I'm going on book tour starting next week, and I, I, I'm trying to think, like, how am I going to, 
how am I going to answer these questions? How am I going to package this? Because when you're mm-hmm. saying to people, you know, sorry, the trajectory of the species is downward. The quality yeah. of life is getting worse, not better. Yeah. That's a depressing <laughs> fucking message. You know, nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> enough about me and my problems. Life is so hard. Um, so, okay, so you're you're in Afghanistan or in uh, Iraq. You didn't go to Afghanistan. No, did not. Finally. You come back go. and it's like, this is bullshit. Life is empty. Nothing's happening here. These people are ignorant. What did, did you go back to drugs? What what happened there? Drinking, uh, drank a lot. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I kept drinking, and so well, I kept trying to volunteer to go back. And then I had a year, like so. Uh, by the time I finished my undergrad, I had one year left in my marine contract. So my plan was to originally go be like a mountain bum in the Himalayas, just so experience adversity in a different kind. You know, go suffer in the mountains, climb, and all that kind of thing. But I had a year left on my contract, so I couldn't. So what I decided to do was go to journalism school because I wanted to become a war photographer. Right. And go back into conflict zones in a different context. Because at least as a journalist, you have freedom. and the Marines, you don't have much freedom. Mm. <laughs> You're told what to do, you go do it. Right. And uh, that can be challenging to say the least. Yeah. Uh, we had many situations in Iraq where just oh, for following orders, you could have to follow it, and it was just like man this could so stupid but anyway so i decided to go to journalism school to become eventually a war photographer but by the time i met my now ex-wife but met my wife at the time started dating so i decided okay let me get out of the marines and the war photographer plans changed as well because you know it's not not a conducive to a family life yeah so uh met her got got married and get a court got a corporate job to try to put some food on the table for a little bit hated it was miserable Mm. but uh (laughs) but i actually knew the the day i signed up for the corporate job i knew exactly what day i would quit because that same day i signed up to ski uh, to do a one month uh, ski crossing of, of Greenland, the second largest ice cap in the world, dragging 190 pound sled for 350 miles. And I had a year and a half to train for it and to basically build up the, like a sort of side hustle. So how do you sign up for that? Like, what's <laughs> there are the people website? who do this. Yeah. <laughs> there are people who do this, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> so you sign up with a logistics company. They kind of plan the logistics. Oh, really? You still have to drag your own sled. With so you weren't joining a, a pre-existing party. You were going to do this and you had a support yeah, so join a team of all of us. We go right. together. So there was six of us that went. Huh. We each drag our own sled, 32 dollars worth of food. It was about 190 pounds when you started. So what was the corporate job? It was this uh, sales and marketing gig for a company called Volt. Fortune 1000 company. So, I mean, mm. it was, it was you know, whatever. It was, right. <laughs> it was nothing so exciting. So you took the job saying, okay, I'm going to do this for a year and a half, make a bunch of money train train exactly and then i'm gonna quit and, and go drag go a fucking sled, sled across, across greenland, greenland. Yeah. for one month in minus 40 degrees 350 right. miles yeah and at the time i was working on building a business at the, on the side um and so um i was getting into like sort of life coaching so i was getting at the time also trained as a life coach and uh, uh, and figuring some of this stuff out. Are you in Texas at this point? No. So now I was in New Jersey. Ah, uh, okay. I did my grad school in New York, Syracuse, New York. Uh-huh. Moved to Jersey. Uh, I used to live near Syracuse. Oh, yeah? yeah okay. I went to high school and college in upstate New York. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. A lot of beautiful areas. Casanova. You ever hear Casanova? It's one of the Finger Lakes. It's Oh, okay. There are the I love four Finger, Finger Lakes and then the little thumb, that's Casanova. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I love that region. Yeah. Beautiful. And then I went to college in Geneva. Got you. Lake Trout capital of the world. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on Lake Seneca. Seneca Lake, I think it was. Okay. Beautiful yeah. area. Yeah. yeah. yeah Beautiful it's, area. It's not bad. Winter it's, sucks. <laughs> I, Long, I love winter sports, winter. so I was uh, digging oh, yeah. it. <laughs> oh, you're digging it. <laughs> Hence the one, one So how old were you cap. when you saw snow for the first time? 
actually, I was pretty old. I mean, not not that young. I can't think we were in Singapore. So around 12, 13 plus. Singapore, you saw snow? Well, I mean, we, we traveled from there. I was oh, living okay. in Singapore, All not right. in Singapore. Right. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't think <laughs> no. it snows in Singapore <laughs> When often. I lived there, we traveled. I think it was in Switzerland where I first saw snow. So I think it was about 11, 12. Oh, uh, okay. But I, for whatever reason, grew up in big cities. But yet I'm here. I am like nature guy, outdoor sports, winter. Yeah. Love it all. Love huh. being in snow sports. Yeah. Hence the Greenland, you know, ice cap for right. a month. <laughs> so why, why Greenland? What was the appeal of that? Was it just that it's an extreme endurance kind of thing? Or there's something about the Arctic that attracted yeah. you? Or the isolation or what? I had been mountaineering a few times by then. I had climbed twice in the Himalayas, been to Bolivia, Alaska, Colorado. So I was, I kept looking, hmm. look, what's the next frontier? So I sort of started to dip into polar exploration. Greenland, so there's three major polar expeditions. There's Greenland, the North Pole, and South Pole. Right. Greenland is the... Uh, the easiest slash cheapest of the three. And so it was sort of entering into it with the training ground to then go to the South Pole and North Pole. And, st- and plus, polar exploration has a different kind of suffering than mountain climbing. So are you a masochist? <laughs> Arguably. <laughs> but there's purpose to the suffering. There's virtue. Now there's an awakening I'm seeking from the suffering. Uh-huh. As opposed to, let's say, like cutting myself when I was in high school. Yeah. There's no virtue to that pain. What Awakening from what? Awake, I believe that suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence. In suffering, you discover something more within yourself that you cannot tap into in comfort. You cannot un- understand who you are by sitting on a couch. I mean, don't, well, with that said, there is value in stillness, but mm. stillness is its own kind of discomfort. Mm. So if, if you're seeking stillness, it's not just sitting on a couch watching a movie. That's not stillness. Like doing nothing in stillness are two different things. Good point. So yeah. I'm saying stillness means so embracing being still. Right. And even that, like as I take to the extreme, for example, just a few months before we met here, I spent seven days in a darkness retreat where I spent seven days in pitch darkness, silence, and isolation to go deep into stillness and confront myself, really. So it was where did you do that? In Germany. In a cave? Or, it was uh, or? actually this lady organizes these darkness retreats. So it's like a vacation. <laughs> huh. not, the, not the most comfortable vacation, and but... she like brings you food or... So yeah, they'll work? bring you... Like you can choose to do water, smoothies, or food. I, do, I did smoothies. So three times a day, they'll bring smoothies. Sort of ring a little bell, put it outside in the hallway. But the hallway's pitch dark too. Because you cannot be exposed to any light at all. And the, the, for multiple reasons. But neurologically, what happens when your brain's in darkness for that much time, your brain starts to release DMT which is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So you go on these hallucinogenic trips that are absolutely surreal. Like as just a quick example, on day six in the darkness, it was so bright, I felt like I needed an eye mask to sleep. It was blindingly bright. I was actually covering my eyes. I was touching my eyelids to see, are they open? Are they closed? Like what's going on? And it was blind and I'm in a pitch dark room. Covering your eyes didn't have any effect though. It was, right? no. Ex- yeah, it's exactly. Because it's all, brain. exactly. Yeah. So it was just felt blindingly bright. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and do wild. you have... Um, do you have any sort of sense of time or is that? I had sense of days, but not hours. The only reason I had sense of days was because in the morning you could hear the birds chirping. Ah. So the room wasn't soundproof. Right. Uh, you could hear the birds chirping and that's how I knew it was morning. Interesting. But I didn't have a sense of hours. I remember reading some research about um, circadian rhythm. Yeah. And they, they put people in caves in Kentucky, I think it was. Um, and they had, but they, there was light. So they put them in these rooms that they had built in caves and they could turn the lights on and off when they wanted to. And they could sort of live a normal life, but mm. they had no clocks mm-hmm. and no exterior sense of day and night. Yeah. And 
I, I, it's been a long time since I read the research, but I think that people sort of ended up in these like 40 hour cycles, something like that. It wasn't a 24 hour cycle. Okay. So the sleep and awake and all that, when there's no external stimuli, yeah. people sort of settled into a different kind of cycle than you would expect based on the fact that we evolved on the surface of the earth. Yeah. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I'd have to look, <laughs> look back and if people Google circadian rhythm research, research. in caves, they'll yeah. find that research. Interesting. And maybe find that I'm misremembering <laughs> it, but yeah. That anyway, so that, that's a really interesting thing to be in darkness for seven days. And seven nights? days. Yeah. Seven days and nights. Yeah. So, what did you learn there? Many, I mean, many things. What had me seek it out was because I actually ended up breaking my sobriety. So, you know, uh, coming now back a little bit, we can come back to that a little bit later. So I broke my sobriety last year and I was like, something's missing that I need to go deeper and go deeper within. Because what I'd come to learn is even the positive things we do, like running or working or working out. Like for me, when I skied across an ice cap in 2012, it was positive, right? Like it's, it's, it's awesome. It's much better than doing drugs and alcohol, but really I was running away from myself. And now I can look at that in the back and, you know, in hindsight and say, that's what I was doing. I was running away from the Monday and I was running away from stillness. I didn't want to be with it. I was looking for another extreme environment to, to, to find comfort in the extremes. Well, that's what I was trying to get at before. Like to what extent is this stuff a distraction? So yeah, no, great question. And it was, but it no longer is because I'm no longer doing it from, a seeking to run away. I'm doing it from a seeking for something, for an awakening. And so I may, do, I may be doing the same things that I was doing back then, but I'm doing it from a very different level of consciousness and tension. It's like tying back into like our conversation about psychedelics. You can do LSD and shrooms just to get high and fucked up, or you can do it with the seeking. And the intention changes the experience completely and right. changes what you get out of it. So, so you're running toward something rather than running away from something at this point. Yeah. And right. don't get me wrong, I still have demons like we all do, right. but I'm very aware of them and I've developed a very healthy relationship with them. What are your demons? <laughs> I've struggled for, a, and to this day, I mean, so one of the things I got from the darkness was a permission to, so when I was in, it ties into this, to the question about the demons is I didn't get a lot of dark stuff that came up in the, in, in the darkness. I wasn't like, because I'd worked through a lot of that. I'd worked through my survivor's guilt. I'd worked through a lot of my stuff from the war. What I did get was, was a greater feeling of self-love, of self-worth, a feeling that it's okay to be happy. Because for a long time in my life, I've really struggled with being happy because I felt guilty for being happy. Why? There's just so much pain and suffering in the world. There's so many people in darkness that who am I to be happy? Who am I to... Why do I get to be happy? Where does that awareness come from, though? You were raised in a comfortable family. But I've You're, seen it now. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I have. Uh, and that's why, too. It's like, what did I do to deserve it? What did I do to deserve all this? I mean, just as another example, like this this really hit me. A few a few months before the darkness, I spent a, a week dragging, uh, running, not dragging, running 167 miles across Liberia. It was about a marathon a day for a week. Liberia. West Africa, yeah. Which is... A shitstorm. They've been through civil war, poverty, child Ebola, soldiers, child soldiers, extreme, horrible, poverty. horrible. Yeah. Exactly. Why so, Liberia? I was going there to film a documentary that was that was doing this sort of humanitarian work, and we were filming a documentary there, huh. and we were raising funds to help build the first sustainable vocational school out there. So I went a week before the documentary filming to run across the country as a vehicle for the fundraising. 
and I mean, profound experience, but like on the second, first day of the run, these two kids started running beside me and we were, I was talking to them and one of the kids wanted to go to medical school. The other wanted to go to vocational training school. One of the kids had lost his father in the war. His mother left. He was staying with the other kid in this tiny little village. The odds of them actually going to medical school and vocational school are zero, if, yeah. if, you know, minimal, if not zero. Yeah. And, and as I was running, I remember thinking after that, like, why, what's the difference between me and that kid? He was born in a different home than, and, and I, why, why did I get to be born with the good parents, the loving parents with money and everything? Yeah. That kid did not. He was born where he was born and lost family in war, living in, in a village with poverty, never going to experience what he wants to experience. What have I done to earn this? And even in war, you know, I lost a friend in the war. I, um, I found out 10 years after the war that my vehicle drove over an active bomb. And for whatever reason, it didn't explode. Hmm. When I share that, some people say, oh, God had purpose for you. But then what about everybody else who died? Right. You know, yeah. what about them? And so... Yeah, I always think of that when you see athletes praying. It's like, oh, God hates the other team. That, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. God doesn't give a shit, man. But mm-hmm. what, what, about, what about just random chance? What about that? That you didn't do anything right. to deserve didn't. it. Nobody did any... And that kid didn't, didn't, didn't deserve any anything to deserve... Yeah. His situation, it's just things fall the way they fall. I yeah, I would I would agree. There is randomness to the universe. There is that that that's it's you can't I can't control it. But it's still it's it's still been hard to deal with that when you've seen seen so much of that. I mean, like in Liberia, I worked with former child soldiers. My my foundation has supported these former child soldiers. What they've seen. I mean, I've, I've supported these young girls who are victims of sex trafficking. Again, the hell they've been through. I've worked in leper colonies in India. You know, like there's so much pain and darkness and suffering. And I get that it is random. There's nothing we can do about it. But for a long time, I struggled with that. And, and only now have I started to realize that, look, me being happy is not going to change the fact that there's somebody suffering in the world. It's not going to change that. If anything, me being happy is going to allow me to be do, to do the work to do something about that suffering because happiness can be fueled to work harder. Right. And also, how to say this? Uh, okay, I have a buddy, a, a really close friend who at 40 years of age, he's married to my ex-girlfriend. Um, they had two, two sons, young mm. kids. And at 39 or 40, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and he's mm-hmm. dying. He's in bed. He can't mm-hmm. get up. He can't wipe his ass. This was like mm-hmm. five years ago. So Sorry. it's been like yeah. from a vigorous, happy dude at the beginning of a beautiful phase of his life, a new wife and kids and just like everything was great mm-hmm. to total collapse. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have similar kind of feeling, survivor guilt or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't though. See, this is the thing. And this is what I want to get at with in this conversation with you. Because I don't feel that. What I feel is Nacho just got fucked by luck. So far, I haven't been fucked by luck. And at this age, no matter what happens to me, I win. I'm 57 years old. Life's been great. I've been super lucky. Mm. I can, you know, get bit by a fucking rattlesnake when I'm saying goodbye to you in an hour and mm. die, and I'll I'll say net win, right? Um, but Nacho would never want me not to enjoy my life mm. because mm. of his bad luck. Nacho would be like, dude, good mm. on you. Like, yeah. get out there and suck it dry. Have a good time. Yeah. 
there's there's no value to him in me not enjoying life. It's quite the opposite, right? Absolutely. So so that's what I don't understand about survivor guilt. I've never understood it because mm. I don't see how my not enjoying life is of any value to anyone else. Absolutely. No, and it's a great point. I get that. Like my friend who died wouldn't want me to sit here and be miserable. And as right. I never, if I were to be the... If you're on the other side, you'd yeah. be like, go kill it, man. Absolutely. Have a good time. Absolutely. But I think it doesn't change the... like. There's a difference between what you know consciously and what you feel emotionally, right? And hmm. emotionally, and oh, I, and through my work now that I've done in my healing, I've learned to work with, the guilt's never entirely gone away. I mean, I, so like what happened with my friend who I lost in the war, we joined this unit together, right? We joined our unit, Marine unit. We were the same Marine unit. Uh, and we could be very, very close. But I would always beat him by a few points. Like I bet him, beat him by a few points in the rifle range or beat him by a few seconds on the run. And we volunteered to go to war every chance we could get. Twice we were told we're going, last minute they canceled it. One summer while I was vacationing in India, he ended up finally finding a unit to go with. Now, he was a good Marine, so he got promoted to corporal. As a result, he was in a seat that was hit with an IED, and he was killed. So I always felt like, had I not been off having fun in vacationing, I should have volunteered. I should have been there with him. I should have gotten that promotion. I should have been in his seat. Now, rationally, I get that war is unpredictable. I could have gone there with him. He could have still died. I could have still come back home. Rationally, I get all of that. But emotionally, it doesn't change the fact that I was my duty to, we volunteered to go together and I didn't go with him. I did not go with him. So when I went to Iraq, I actually went out there not expecting to come back alive. We, he died before I went to war. And I expected, I went to war saying, if somebody's going to die, let it be me. I don't give, like when I had that job walking in front of bombs, I was like, fuck yeah, let it be me instead of somebody else. Um, and so I was, so, so, you know, so the point is that emotion, rationally, I get the nature of war is unpredictable. Emotionally, it doesn't change the fact that I, I still feel like it should have been me that died instead of him, but I've learned to work with that guilt. So and only now have I like even transformed that relationship. But for a long time in my healing, when I kind of came back, I was, so I was on the brink of suicide after the war. I mean, I had drank to a point that I was struggling with depression, drinking almost like a liter of vodka a day, just drinking till I pass out, waking up for five, seven days straight. And I was on the verge of suicide. And then that healing is when it led me to fear Vana and led me to all that work. And so what I started doing was realizing the guilt's not going to go away, but I can make it work for me. So I actually had a picture of my friend that I lost in the war, him and me together. And it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. So it became my fuel. Because I think that guilt is just an expression of love. Right? Like, why does survivor's guilt happen? It's not just to veterans, of course. Anybody. Often people who lose. Like you said, you have a friend that something bad happens to. Why? Why them? Why not me? You know, and I think it's an expression of of love, of of our connection as human beings. So the emotion of it is not a bad thing; it's a human thing. And I think the problem is we've demonized guilt. We say guilt is bad. We say these things are bad. I mean, everybody told me don't feel guilty. The therapist and everybody's like, and I get it rationally, right? Like I get it. But but it's like the point is not. And we do that all the time. We're like, don't feel what you feel. Don't be yeah. scared. Don't stress right. out. Don't yeah. worry. Don't, don't be worry. anxious. Yeah. That's nonsense. Yeah. Like feel what you feel. Right. Do something with that emotion. Right. Make it work. So I worked. And only now have I changed like that word. I don't say. I don't say anymore. Um, this should have been you earn this life. I now say honor his death, earn this life. Because I realized that while the guilt worked for me for a while, it started going too far. And I was living, hence what I was telling you about the darkness, that I was living in such internal darkness, in constant guilt, <laughs> that I was 
that only the only reason I think I wasn't getting back to alcohol, it was just pure grit, you know? And eventually when my life punched me in the face again and I went through this really challenging divorce, I did break my sobriety. And I realized that why was because I was, I mean, why am I running away from myself again? Because I was just so burned out from everything. I mean, if you're living constantly with like, like, you know, this darkness within you, it, yeah. it, it gets tiring. And only kind of my will got me that far. But I realized eventually that, so now, like I said, I've changed it, honor his death, earn this life in the sense that, okay, like, it's no longer about, like, you know, the guilt might be there from time to time, but now it's using this, that I can experience happiness and use, like, embrace this experience of life, not just doing it because, you know, I haven't suffered enough. So, um, To what extent is ego uh, operative in these things? You know, because I'm thinking about what we're calling survivor guilt here, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking... in a way, like what's happening to, to my friend Nacho is his story. That's his life. It's mm. his karma. It's his destiny. It's his these lessons for him to learn, for him to face, whatever. Um, and if I insert myself into his story mm. or I make his story about me, mm. right? Like, why not me? There's a because when you said that earlier, you're like, why not me? I thought, yeah, we also feel the opposite of that. When someone else wins the lottery, why not me? Someone else marries the really hot, beautiful, great woman, why not me? Yeah. So it's it, they're two sides of the same thing. Yeah. It's almost like survivor guilt is the sort of other side of the coin of envy. Hmm. You know, so, yeah. Why not me? Yeah. And so I think what I'm what I'm suggesting is like. It's none of my fucking business in a way. Hmm. You know? I got you. I mean, uh, no, I, if I were your therapist, I wouldn't have told <laughs> you don't feel guilt. I would have said, it's none of your fucking business, dude. Your life is your life. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I'm, but I'm not no, a therapist, no, no. so who gives a shit? <laughs> I mean, that's a really good point. I get what you mean, and I think it is a really good point. So I guess there there is maybe, yeah, a bit of ego involved in that. But I also think we're not meant to be here as like in life in isolation like oh, my I life agree. exists as I one agree. as part of the human community the human family yeah so inevitably like we i believe like we got we we live for each other to some degree like we're a part yeah. of this group so yeah. so inevitably we're going to be connected and inevitably i'm going to feel putting myself in x person's shoes which is you know a, not always not a bad thing right to be able to yeah, as long as we give them the space to live their own destiny, I guess. Is, that makes sense, is the yeah. Thing. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I don't know. I I mean, my, my nature is, well, I'm still trying to figure out what my nature is. But because oh, wow. I, I've, I've traveled a lot and, and in some realms of life, I, I've pushed to some extreme. Mm. But when I, if I were telling, if I were describing myself, which, you know, is pretty inaccurate, right? Like we don't really know we, what we no, look like. Right. <laughs> we look in the mirror and what we see is in what other people see. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, like I have this book idea that I'm going to be working on soon, which is sort of a, a self-help book, but it's a parody of self-help books because the whole point of the book is just chill the fuck out, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. most diseases are caused or exacerbated by stress. So if you're freaking, freaking out about stuff, that may be the source of your problem, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you could just relax, most things go away. 
So that's sort of the, you know, save your money on the book, guys. That's, that's the message. So I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I, I celebrate the absence of um, extreme effort, hmm. which is hard. As you were saying earlier, stillness is fucking hard. It's very hard. It's hard yeah. to listen to your body. It's hard to hear what it's telling you, especially yeah. when it's telling you, calm the fuck down, man. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You know? Can you hear that if your body says that to you? I'm getting much, much better. Like today, I know the difference if I'm going for a run versus like me being lazy versus my body genuinely needs Uh, the rest and recovery. I know the difference. Yeah. And the laziness I'll fight through. And if it's genuine recovery, I'm like, all right, maybe it's a good time to just yeah. take, you know, to, to rest. So I'm, you yeah. get better. But that's why you need stillness. You need stillness so you to become you and I should connected. hang out. If we hung out, I would be more active. You'd relax more. <laughs> we'd find both a good balance. Be I love yeah, it. Yeah. I love it. Because <laughs> I sure as hell am not running to Santa Monica after this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, we, I think, you know, I interrupted you nine, no, no, nine different all times good. here. We've been going where we go. Fearvana. Super great review. Five star solid five star i looked at the reviews earlier there are no zero star reviews or one i don't know what the bottom amazon review thing is uh the two star there was like one two star review and the guy was like they're the person what was it it was like yeah i don't know i'm kind of confused like yeah you're just dumb dude like you should not be allowed to leave amazon reviews because you're dumb (laughs) <laughs> but like yeah really well reviewed you must be yeah, proud of that very much so I yeah i feel grateful that it's uh and there were like 90 difference. reviews too it wasn't yeah. like your friends it no was, no it you was know, strangers <laughs> or yeah it's yeah. done well it's done well i yeah. mean when i started you know no platform nothing so uh it continues to grow and can continues to do well i feel very grateful for that yeah uh you know when you get the dalai lama writing the forward for your book it kind of changes things so that how, was, how did you hook up with him Cole Pitch. No shit. You just yeah. sent Dalai Lama at just, gmail.com. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pure Cole Pitch. I just, uh, I first reached out to actually the email on the office on the website and that kind of didn't get a response. So I did like hours and hours of research. I found a name and an email address in the office of the Dalai Lama. I don't know who it was, but just a name and an email address. Reached out to him. Eventually he connected me to three other people. Got to the, got to the right monk in the office there. I shot a personal video for him sharing my journey, what we want to do with Firvana, the essence of Firvana, the mission. All the profits from the book are going to charity as well. So we were sharing the charities we support, the work we're trying to do. Hmm. Uh, and after five months of building a relationship with this monk, and this really ties into actually a lot of the things we're talking about in being terms of being with their emotions, like guilt. The whole time reaching out to this monk, right? I would not hear back and think to myself, oh, they hate my book. They're right. ignoring me. Right. You know, all this stuff, you feel the self-doubt. Again, the ego. You feel the fear. It's about me. But ego, I think ego is also not the enemy. Ego is demonized as something bad. But yeah. ego is human. I mean, ego is human, as is all our emotions. It is human, but I, but I think we, we need to resist the impulse to make things about us you know what i mean like i feel you in that that situation it's like oh they don't like it they don't like me they're no dude they're just busy exactly they haven't gotten around to it exactly exactly so in that case you can be with it and not be attached to it so i would like i mean at this point i've gotten pretty good at noticing that 
this emotion is here, this thought is here, but I am not my thoughts, my emotions, or my experiences. Exactly. I'm the thinker of my thoughts, the feeler of my feelings, right. and the experiencer of my experiences, right? The higher me, whatever you want to call it, right. conscious self, divine self, higher right. self, anything of those. So I would be sort of be with that stuff and be like, okay, it's not real. Because again, it's not about me. They're probably just busy, which they are. Most of the times, if you right. don't get an email back from somebody, it's not because they hate you, which your yeah. mind will take you there. Right. And it's okay that it's there. The goal is not to resist that thought. Right. Except that it's there. Right. And the faster, it ties in everything you're saying in terms of just like being with the, the ch- like being chill and like what you were saying in your next book, just accept the isness of the human experience, right? Yeah. There's an isness. It just is. Right. It's nothing about you. Right. And then I would follow up anyway, right. <laughs> you know, and realize that my emotions and my thoughts are not real. So after five months of sort of building a relationship with this monk, he ended up writing me back saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And I got this beautiful letter in the mail with the Dalai Lama seal and signature. No and shit. I only asked for like a one line endorsement, but he ended up writing the forward, which was so. He wrote the forward. He wrote the forward for the book. What? Dude, <laughs> it was amazing. amazing. It was amazing. It was very, I mean, for me, just on a spiritual level, such a blessing, yeah. but obviously changed everything for the marketing of the book, right? Sure. To have that. Here's an unknown author with zero platform. Dalai Lama's name on the front of the book changed everything. And thankfully, like, not only is the book making an impact, uh, but we've raised a lot of money for charities. We've mentioned, like, this former child soldier we support in Liberia, these young girls who are victims of sex trafficking in India. So we're doing some beautiful work that I feel privileged to be a part of. That's fantastic. Yeah. Were you raised in a religious environment? Not really, no. I would say more, like, spiritual. Uh, my mom maybe kind of slightly follows the Hinduism a little bit more, like maybe some of the, but even then she would say she's spiritual, not religious. My dad, not religious by any means, mm. but lives a very spiritual way engineer. of life. <laughs> exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> won't let you get a degree. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. That's interesting. Well, because when you're talking about guilt, when, when people mention guilt, I often assume they were raised Catholic. Because hmm. guilt is such valid. a big exactly. thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. religion is a mind control thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> and that, but you're also talking in in ways that make me think you studied Buddhism. Very much so. A lot of my yeah. a lot of my uh, way of thinking, if I had to connect it to one religion closest with, without a doubt, would be Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. Because I consider myself a very spiritual person. Right. Uh, you know, seeking yeah. these higher awakenings. I like how growth. Buddhists don't even consider. Buddhism to be a religion. It's yeah. more of a, a practice or an approach. Exactly. Like what you were saying about, you know, it's not about drowning out the voice. You listen to the voice, exactly. but then you choose whether to follow it's or not. Yeah. I even think about this. And I had a woman on the podcast, uh, Lana, what was her name? She teaches at Stanford. She's a psychologist. And she, um, uh, I can't remember her name right now, but she um, studied psychosis and schizophrenia Mm. particularly and she looked at different uh, cultures and how schizophrenics experience the auditory hallucinations that are common to schizophrenia i think it was the u.s ghana and i think india or or maybe malaysia but somewhere in asia Mm. um and so all all these schizophrenics heard voices talking to them but they said very different things. The mm. American were like, kill yourself. You suck. You're a piece of shit. You should die. Blah. The the Ghana are like, you know, be nice to your sister. Or, you know, mm. today's a good day to clean the house. And, and the Indians were like, you know, respect your grandmother. And, mm-hmm. you know, all this sort of like just reminders, gentle reminders, how to like take care of yourself a little better. 
And, you know, from that, I thought, you know, my wife's a psychiatrist. We talk about this stuff. Mm. It's like everybody hears voices. It's not that schizophrenics hear voices and the rest of us don't. It's that the rest of us ignore them or 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 their friendly voices yeah. or it's mm. you know mm. like don't worry about it dude mm. or it's time for a run or whatever yeah. like we're all hearing voices yeah. yeah it's just how we deal with them exactly yeah but i think the problem too is that many people become that voice we att- we make that thought and that feeling real like that's who i am right people will say like I have depression. I am depressed. Right. As opposed to like my brain is feeling this depression, but I am not my brain. Well, right? that's such a Buddhist approach, <laughs> exactly. right? It really is. Yeah. You are not this your experience. Thing. You are something that is having that experience exactly. or observing. And the this, observer of that. Yeah, yeah. There's something timeless yeah. in you that's just sort of watching this life happened and yeah. probably watch the one before and then it'll watch the one after. <laughs> what do you, you think about that? Do you, about, do you have a sense of the afterlife or? I personally do not believe in one. Uh, I think when we're dead, we're dead <laughs> and we're buried in the ground. So embrace this one journey. I, um, I, I've come up with a metaphor for it that works for me, which mm. is that a life is like a raindrop mm. and when the life ends, it's the raindrop hitting the ocean. Hmm. So the raindrop is finished, but the water isn't. That's really cool. So that to me, that's the that's the really cool. observer is the water. It's the essence of the water. So the raindrop is your identity and my identity yeah. in this life. But so that ends. Drops into the ocean. But it goes into the ocean. The water doesn't disappear. I really like that. It, goes back into the hole and then oh, from the hole another raindrop forms eventually that's beautiful i might yeah. steal that yeah, yeah. Take it. Take it. <laughs> no that's really it's profound public. because i i i, I get that because i think we're immortalized in a way that so whether there's an afterlife but we we are immortalized through the things we do and the things we say and the right. acts of creation like long after you and me are gone our book will be here still hopefully touching lives making a difference kindle version anyway. <laughs> exactly kindle version <laughs> but and not just the book but like i mean like i look at that story I was saying earlier of the Black Hawk Down, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, right? They're they're dead now and their bodies, they're dead, right. but their story has transcended them. That Their life has affected my life. So any right. lives that I touch is directly, or indirectly, directly, whatever, it's connected to their life. Right. So I love that, that they've become right. part of this ocean and now their story is connected to me. It's led me to Firvana, you know? Right. So we're all that one in that long journey. Yeah. So I yeah. really like that analogy, yeah. Yeah, and, and very liquid and like, I, I just... Life seems liquid to me. Yeah. I think we we mistake things for solid when actually everything's liquid. Liquid, yeah. Yeah. Be like water. Yeah, be like water. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Grasshopper. <laughs> did you ever, you ever watch Kung Fu? Do you ever see that show? You're, you're, no. You're too no, young. Too young. <laughs> yeah, well, Bruce, like when I was a kid, Bruce Lee, yeah. that was like the thing. Yeah. And then there was this show called Kung Fu that Bruce Lee developed. And he was supposed to star in it. And at the last minute, the television studio said he was too Asian. So they hired David Carradine and he played Kwai Chang Kane. Yeah, Yeah. it was a big, it was a heartbreaker for Bruce Lee. Mm, Um, I know that part. And it was, it's total bullshit. And then David Carradine ended up dying, jerking off and choking himself in a Bangkok hotel room. What a way to go. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe it feels good, but man, that's a pretty embarrassing way to go yeah. out. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was, there was a lot of sort of uh, ancient wisdom in that show. I, I used to love okay. that show. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Lee, right? And Bruce like Lee, yeah. man. Oh, I love Bruce Lee. Yeah. 
He was a man. <laughs> he was. He was a tough motherfucker. Yes, he was. Um, so do you have another book in mind? or Are you done? Is one and out? Uh, one and done? Well, I mean, that was brutal. I do yeah. have other two other books in mind. Uh, not within the next year or so. Uh, one book, actually, I want to write completely in the darkness. Because I journaled. It's going to be was, hard to read. It's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> writing off the side of the Just page. Chicken scratch. Yeah. yeah I yeah. did journal when I was in the dark. Did you? Yeah. So I had like a journal with a little ruler, you know, kind of put a ruler and then just write and, you know, move it down. Uh-huh. Obviously, I wasn't within the lines of the page, but it was legible. Right. And the stuff that came through was very profound. I mean, I'm not saying my answers were the right answers, obviously, but I got answers to me that satisfied me on things like the nature of God, the nature of enlightenment, the essence of life. Why are we here? What is the nature of the self? Like a lot of these things that we're talking about about here you know this how we are immortalized beyond our presence body right you know and like even like paradoxically sitting in a dark room and isolated i felt i had moments of feeling more connected to all that is because the kind of unique thing about darkness is while it's nothing it's the nothingness of darkness also makes it everything yeah it's all encompassing you can see everything exactly in your mind yeah and you have nowhere to yeah so i mean you have nowhere to go in the darkness like why i chose to do that versus let's say a vipassana or a silent meditation you know the silent meditation i've done it yeah oh you've done it okay so yeah i know those are definitely more, more common so i was choosing to do that i didn't know darkness retreats existed but why i chose the darkness over that was when you shut off visual sense is your consciousness has nothing to attach to, right? Mm. I can't look at this wall and be like, that's a wall, and then think about that. I have nowhere to go externally but go within. So yeah. I like to say your soul becomes a mirror to itself. Right. And so there was immensely profound stuff that came through in the journal. So I've actually thought eventually, not going to do this anytime soon, but go spend like a month in the darkness and just write and write a whole book there. So that's that's one idea. That I mean, not an idea. I will almost certainly do this. It's just a matter of when, not if. A month in the darkness. However long it takes, two weeks to maybe a month. I, it was not going to take that because you have nothing else to do but write. So <laughs> oh, you're sitting in dark. So but go. So spend you have a, a bathroom in the, yeah. in the room. You got a tiny little room. There's a little bed, couch, table, bathroom. That's about it. And, yeah. you, and by, I, I mean, at some point. Were you just walking around like you knew where everything was, as if there were light, or were you still feeling? You're still for feeling, it? feeling your way, so but you, you never have a quite sense. make the mental map. Yeah, I mean, you have a mental map, but you're just feeling just to make sure you're not, you know, gonna. <laughs> but like one thing cool about that is, in the darkness, you're forced to live with so much intention. Like if I put my water down, I need to know where that water is, <laughs> you know, so I know exactly. So you start to get. So I like one lesson among many that I've taken from the darkness was. Uh, living with that kind of intention and precision in my daily life. So I know everything where, I mean, I could walk in my, I could walk to my kitchen blind and make my smoothie. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> uh, my morning smoothie. So Were that kind of stuff. Were there any bugs in there? Was there anything no. flying around? No. <laughs> Thankfully, no. Would no, that nothing have sucked if someone was crawling That would have been a little you? intense. <laughs> and you're like, is that real? <laughs> is that exactly right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a little intense. Huh. But So I thought about doing that. Because I mean, not just the darkness, but actually the one thing to share is like the most profound thing was actually coming back to the light. Yeah. I got a lot from the darkness, but coming back into the light for the first time after seven days, the way you look at the world through those eyes, I mean, I was tearing up and just remember saying to myself that I want to look at the world every day through these eyes. Yeah. And I also remember feeling gratitude, like a deep, just a knowingness, not just I'm feeling grateful, but a knowingness of gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I've experienced in my life because I realized that you can't really see the light that way unless you've been in the dark. Right. You know, so every pain, every suffering, it leads you to experience the light in in a different way that you will never really understand unless you've gone to those spaces. Isn't it interesting to have a, an actual tangible experience that is itself a profound metaphor? 
Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I know you're talking about yeah. actual light and actual no, darkness. No, but of course that's metaphorical too. But of course too. it exactly. to everything, exactly. doesn't it? That's yeah. why I just felt grateful for all the pain, all the suffering, and every bit of it, you know? I mean, I never would have wanted my divorce to happen, but I'm grateful it happened because it taught me a new kind of suffering that are ultimately a new kind of awakening. So uh, every in every in every hell, in every pain, there is an awakening to be had. So now that brings us back to, to this sort of deeper philosophical issue that we were talking about because i was thinking when you were talking about like you know what did i do to deserve mm. you know all my good fortune when you know these kids in africa were mm. sex trafficked and experienced all this mm. horror it's interesting how we we project uh ourselves into other people's experience and imagine their experience in a way that we think is accurate or compassionate or whatever, but it's actually generally so far because we have mm. no idea what it's like yeah. to be in someone else's head, right? Yeah. And so we're talking about India earlier. The first time I went to India, I was amazed at the poverty and amazed at how happy people seemed. Yeah. I couldn't put those two things together because in my head, poverty equals misery. I felt the same way the first time I went to a strip club. It was in, hmm. it was in Anchorage, Alaska. It was the Alaskan Bush Company, and I had this. It's the, it, it seems like these are two totally unrelated <laughs> things, but in fact they are because I yeah. like my thing was I you know I I I was full of guilt and you know white guilt and I was mm. this privileged mm. heterosexual man and blah blah blah. So I had this belief system that any woman who worked as a stripper was desperate, um, full of shame, mm, all this mm, stuff, right? Mm. And so my friends wanted to go to this strip club, and I I said, well, I'm not going in there. I was also a vegetarian at the time. I was super judgmental, you know, you. pedantic little fuck. <laughs> and my friends were like, oh, but we're going to go. I'm like, okay, you guys go in. I'll sit out here in the car in the parking lot and read, and, which is what I did. And finally, one of my friends, John, came out an hour or two later. He's like, dude, you got to come in here. This is not at all what you're thinking. So I went in and it blew my fucking mind because these women were having a blast. They were Mm. making a ton of money Mm. because all these bozos were working out on the oil (laughs) rigs, come into Anchorage. You know, they got three days off and $10,000 in their pocket and they're going to the strip club. These women would fly up. They're they're dancing. They're beautiful. They're getting all this attention. They're not turning tricks. They're just prancing around naked and dudes are literally throwing Mm. money at them. They're having a blast. And I had Mm. to sit there and, and... sort of reconfigure my whole sense of reality that Mm. what I was imagining their experience to be was totally wrong. It was totally coming from me and had nothing to do with them. Your lens of the world. Right. And same thing in India. It's like poverty equals misery. I go to India. I'm in Rajasthan. There are these kids like, mm. you know, sleeping on the street, running mm. around, not running down their nose. Mm. They were laughing their asses off. They were having so much Happier fun. than most kids you might see out here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. There's a movie called, I think it's called Babies. And it's a, it's a documentary. There's no narrative. It's just footage of babies. They're, they're, and there are four babies that they're tracking. There's one in Mongolia. There's one somewhere in Africa, like a hunter-gatherer in maybe a Maasai or 
or somewhere in Tanzania, Hadza maybe, uh, one in Tokyo and one in San Francisco, a white kid in San Francisco. Okay. And you watch these babies, and like the one in Africa is rolling around, the dog's licking its face, it's in the dirt, it's laughing, it's happy. Mm-hmm. Then you see the one in San Francisco, it's in a little stroller, you know, wrapped up in blankets, a stupid little hat on, and it's a miserable little fucking animal. <laughs> it's totally not enjoying life. That's anyway, super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie, babies. Check it out. Huh. Um, anyway, my point is. You know, in India, I, I yeah. was imposing my belief system on yeah. other people's experience. So that that leads to this deeper question, like, to what extent is our survivor guilt or our, you know, sense of privilege actually a, an illusion? Right. Yeah. Right? Like, maybe you're actually no luckier than those kids in Liberia. I love that. I think that's, yeah, no, I think How that's... How do we a- know? Yeah, because, I mean, like you look at it, people here, there's people here in America, middle to upper class America, that are going to be much, much more, and I've seen this, much, much more miserable than that poor kid on the street of India. I mean, I see the poverty when I go to India every single time. And like you said, these kids, some of these kids, I mean, when when they get a piece of candy, they are so happy that like a kid over here, you know, again, not to generalize, but you get what I mean, kid over here will get their new iPhone and it's like not even one tenth of that happiness that you see in the eyes of that kid, right? right? So I get it. Like what we believe is everything i mean even like when we were in in liberia we go to these villages and we think that we should give them our version of what a prosperous life looks like but they don't like it's not that's not even close to the case right because in many ways i think that like some people sometimes in that poverty are going to be better off because there's a beauty to adversity and and so there's a fine line so actually a friend of mine did something really really cool he did this trip where he walked around india and set a rule that he's not going to use uh he's not going to pay for food or lodging and intense rule to set as you walk around, right? And he noticed that people who were poor would welcome into their welcome him into their homes, yeah. give him whatever food they had. Maybe you go into the big city and do that, they'd be like, who the hell are you? Get out of here, right? And not just are they less sort of um, <laughs> humane and loving, they were more miserable. So he was like, why are we trying to get people out of poverty right. into this well-being, right? Suck them into our misery. Into our, into our misery our of like, misery. yeah, affluent misery, exactly. So now what he started is a village, and he calls it proto-village, where the, the idea is, okay, we don't want people to be in poverty to the point that they don't have food and they're dying right but but not to the point that they have this burden of affluence kind of world that they're just miserable because yeah most of people i see in most people i see in affluent in who have a lot of money in india they are miserable well <laughs> i hope in, they're not hearing this i, I, I hope they don't hear your podcast some, they of those, don't my fam- to my <laughs> some of my family <laughs> in india because i mean some of them are so miserable yeah. and i'm like they have all the money in the world to my extended family right miserable Less loving. Well, there's there's a whole section in Civilized to Death where I propose this term called rich asshole syndrome, <laughs> R-A-S for that. short, right? <laughs> and and what I'm arguing in that is, you know, we tend to think that assholes become rich because they're willing to do these things, these, these ethically, mm. you know, mm. questionable things to become rich. But I think that what happens is being rich makes you an asshole mm. because being having more than the people around you separates you from them mm. and creates the necessity for you to to build psychological scar tissue to not notice the difference mm. so mm. there's an isolation that happens mm. when when there's this mm. dislocation Interesting. and yeah. and there's all sorts of research showing exactly what you're saying is true that people who have more wealth have more difficulty reading emotion on other people's faces. 
Hmm. Just something as basic as that. Yeah. Um, there's this guy, uh, Dasher Keltner at Berkeley, who's done a bunch of research where he actually like he'll position an old lady at a crosswalk and set up cameras. And so they'll monitor which cars stop and which cars don't stop. And they'll, they'll all see the lady. She's all there, you know, with her walker or her cane or something. Yeah. The more expensive the car is, the less Unless likely it is to stop. That's wild. That's, and people, yeah. it just changes you, right? That's and I don't think it's the assholes buy BMWs. I think it's people who can afford a BMW mm, have this. Mm, it's mm. hard. Mm. It's fucking hard. They're suffering. And so oh, they... Yeah, they yeah develop this asshole behavior as a response to their own suffering yeah yeah that's super interesting studies which is why i think that that's why you got to go experience the extremes coming back to what we talked about earlier right like you know i i i want to make money so i can use money as a vehicle for service uh but i will never lose sight of that because i'll always be going back to the other extreme right and i think that hence the value you you don't you don't lose touch of the entirety of the human experience and you feel more connected to it and as a result just on a selfish level you're less miserable <laughs> yes yeah. i experience intense pain when i do certain things like i do like running 70 miles and all that yes uh, i'll go to these places it's emotionally tiring it's emotionally stressful to see the human suffering in some of these places but i would not change that for anything in the world you know yeah. to go experience that you ex- you experience the depth and the intensity and the magnificence of the entire human experience not this one little inch of the human experience you experience yeah. all of it you know yeah. and so that's why you that's why there's value in that adversity like this friend i was saying who created the village you know he gets people out of like poverty where they have food but he doesn't bring them to the world of affluence so they're still in a tribal kind of worry living together right. and there's that beauty of which we're losing that adversity and that's right. why people who have everything are actually suffering more I firmly believe that the affluent next generation is going to be the generation that suffers more than every other people, like, we, <laughs> which we you can, might We can already agree. see it. Yeah. Like, suicide and depression exactly. rates in higher kids than, are higher than ever. Ever, exactly. Why? Because they're isolated. Why are they isolated? Because they have fucking iPads and exactly. phones and all these technological marvels. And what do they do? Exactly. They spend their lives looking into this exactly. fucking thing. Everyone else's life is better than mine. Exactly. Yeah. We're, civilization is not the answer. It's a fucking problem. God I agree damn with you more, it, my friend. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of the guy? Berkshire Hathaway, the the billionaire investor. Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Yeah. 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 He seems like a, a pretty intelligent dude. Yeah, do, yeah. There's a quote you were talking about. Your friend's village. You reminded me of that quote he said about his kids that he's leaving all his money to charities. Um, and he says, I'm going to leave my, my children enough money so they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. And yeah, I thought yeah. that's, that's great. <laughs> like have enough that you can, you know, you've got enough that you can, yeah. if you have an idea, you can put it into action, yeah. but not enough that you can just sit around and I not do, do anything because yeah. <laughs> you won't be happy. Yeah. I'm, I know plenty of people like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. <laughs> yeah. Comfort and is overrated. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. There's a lot of wisdom in what you're doing. Um, you, what's your uh, website? Where can people find you? Fearvana.com. F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A. Fearvana.com. How did that title come to you? Uh, my ex-wife actually coined the word. Uh, so I, nice. I had been sort of living this ethos with all the things that I do. you know. And then in my own healing of PTSD, I realized that post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. There's a 
mm. difference between the two. Right. And post-traumatic stress is a normal human response to war, but it doesn't mean it's a disorder. I can actually work with it. Right. So Don't the, pathologize the it. Yeah. yeah. So the ethos of fear of honor, right? Like I'd been living it with all these extreme things that I do is that fear and struggle at, at its high level, not just fear, but any kind of suffering and any kind of struggle can be an access point to bliss and enlightenment and in fact is an access point to bliss and enlightenment and they kind of coexist. So I'd been sort of living this ethos and, she, and we were kind of brainstorming how to, and she came up with the word fear of honor and I was like, that is brilliant and yeah. bought like 20 different domains after that. And, Nicely uh, done. <laughs> and here Isn't we are. great when you get a title and you're like, that's it. That's it. There's yeah. no, oh, well, let's run it by some people <laughs> and focus group it. You're just like, it bing, just, bing, I mean, that's it. Just, it. It's, yeah. I mean, it's to the, I can say it's badass because it's not just mine. So I can say it without ego <laughs> that it's even better when it's your Exactly. And it's not, not ego, but that it's, I, I mean, it was like, this is gold. It just, it yeah. just clicked. Yeah. 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 Well, congratulations on that you, and sir. continued success. Thank you so much. And everything you. you do. And Thank don't you. don't fucking kill yourself out there, man. <laughs> I'll try not to. <laughs> I had a buddy that line, yeah. on this podcast, Justin Alexander, who I he was on, I don't know, three times and we became good friends mm-hmm. and traveled together. We were in Thailand together for about a month. And then he went to the Himalayas and he was an extreme dude. He 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 was a fucking ninja guy. He would mm. climb skyscrapers at night in his black ninja thing and go out and you know take pictures of himself out on the ledge and yeah. he was always doing shit like that and um he went to the Himalayas uh up above Manali. I forget the name of it. There's a famous the Parv Parvanatu Valley or something like that. And uh he was living with a sadhu in a cave. Wow. And then he was killed and his body was never found oh my god and the guy who was in jail supposedly committed suicide when the jailer went out to take a piss it, it's all very mysterious oh, oh wow sorry um there were yeah. some articles written about it and now actually there I, i've received emails from two different people there's somebody filming a documentary and somebody else writing a book about it and and my last oh my communication God. with him was he was like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to live in this cave. I'm going to really push it. And I want to have this. And I said to him, like, dude, do what you need to do, but come back. He fucking didn't come back. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. 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 So when, when I meet somebody like you or like, <laughs> you know, pushing it, pushing it, like, don't push it too far, man. I appreciate that. No, yeah. no, I get it. I'm like now exploring the lighter side the girl and kind of now uh so we went on a few dates and things are going well she's like what i am to seeking suffering and pain she is to joy and bliss yeah, so she's nice. helping me embrace the lighter side and there's again there's value to all sides of the human experience definitely yeah, so working on yeah so i appreciate it though <laughs> yeah yeah good well thanks for doing this thanks brother it's been a pleasure yeah. <laughs> okay mom uh, tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have Lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. 
Dance into the ground. 